0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. My name is Brian King and I am Vice President for Child Behavioral Health at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals and the Vice Chair for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at UCSF. I'm pleased to introduce today's program, the youth mental health crisis. What's next? Today's program is supported by the John Pritzker Family Fund and is part of a series of programs at the Commonwealth Club looking at today's mental health challenges. While the club has resumed in-person programming at its building on the Embarcadero, today's program is obviously virtual and we're pleased that you've joined us today. Other programs in this series can be found at the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. As you will hear from my UCSF colleagues today, we're at a critical time for youth mental health. The US Surgeon General recently noted, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry that our young people are facing a mental health crisis. The pandemic has had a significant impact on youth of all backgrounds, and my colleagues are facing overwhelming requests for help, support, and referrals every single day. Yet, Mental health challenges for youth certainly didn't start with the pandemic. Surgeon General Satcher issued a call to action 20 years ago, and we were already facing a challenging situation for young people, particularly from low income and marginalized communities. The pandemic, of course, has intensified the situation. And even over the past week, we've seen school closures and soaring infections among young people. We know these issues present tremendous challenges for youth, and the impact on them and their families, and ultimately the communities is significant. You'll hear more about what's happening on the ground today as it relates to these issues, to youth mental health, and my terrific colleagues uh, at UCSF will also share their thoughts about our path forward. We're also thrilled that we have the voice of a young person on the panel whom I sincerely hope is a future UCSF colleague. I want to again thank the John Pritzker Family Fund and the Commonwealth Club for presenting today's program. And I am pleased to turn the program over to today's moderator, Katie Albright, the CEO of Safe and Sound, a child advocacy organization here in San Francisco that works to prevent child abuse. I now turn the program over to you and thank you, Katie.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much, Brian. I am honored to be here. I am so pleased to be the moderator for today's Commonwealth program, The Youth Mental Health Crisis, What's Next? This program is the latest in a series of programs, as Brian said, on key issues in mental health. This series is funded by the John Pritzker Family Fund, and we are so thankful for their support. Other programs in this series can be found on the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Brian said, this is a critical time for the subject of today's program. Young people are experiencing an unprecedented increase in mental health emergencies, stressors and isolation, coupled with decreases in mental health provider visits. Experts around the world, around the country are raising the alarm. In October of last year, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association joined together to declare a national emergency in youth mental health. Just a few months ago, in December of 2021, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, warned that young people are facing devastating mental health effects as a result of challenges experienced by their generation. The Surgeon General reported, cited in increases in self-reports of young people of depression, anxiety, and emergency room visits for mental health challenges. And just today, Children Now issued its 2022 annual report card on the well-being of kids and gave California a failing grade in its ability to create environments that help children to be emotionally well. Today, I am so privileged and honored to be joined by several experts, most from UCSF, to discuss this topic in more detail. Nicole Push. Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics at the UCSF Weill Institute for Neurosciences, and the Lisa and John Pritzker Distinguished Professor of Developmental and Behavioral Health. William Martinez, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the UCSF Weill Institute for Neurosciences, and the Director of Child and Adolescent Services at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Son Toy Trotter, Program Manager of School Based Behavioral Health Services at UCSF's Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. Petra Steinbuschel, Professor of Psychiatry at UCSF's Weill Institute for Neurosciences and Director of the UCSF Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Portal. And last but not least, Ronnie Sindeldecker a Bay Area eighth grade student who is working on mental health issues, raising awareness and anti-stigma at her school and in her community. Before we jump into our discussion, a quick note, if you as a viewer or listener have questions for any of our guests or for me, please put them in your YouTube chat box and your questions will be forwarded to me throughout the program. We hope to get to as many of your questions as we possibly can. Okay, let's start. I'm gonna ask each of our speakers to say a few words up front, and then we'll head into a group discussion. Ronnie, I am so glad you're here with us today. Would you introduce yourself a bit and talk more about your background in youth mental
3: health? Thanks so much for having me, and thank you to Dr. Stephen Hinshaw for inviting me to this panel. I'm Ari Ronnie Sineldecker. I'm 13, and I'm a mental health advocate and activist. A little over a year ago, I created a documentary named Power to Save a Life about the effects of social media on the mental health of teens and tweens. And I think that's really what started my passion to advocate for more peer-to-peer communication and education in schools and fight to release the stigma around mental health. And since then, I've spoken directly to educators and administrators about school improvements, needed in social-emotional learning at the Krauss Center for Innovation. I've created a second documentary named Stigma-Free Nation, Pathway to Parity, about closing loopholes in the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act to move towards a more stigma-free society. I founded an anti-stigma club at my school named The Empathizers. We work on spreading mental health awareness, building a stigma-free community, and promoting peer-to-peer communication and support so that students learn to express their feelings and emotions. I'm a member of the Community Health Awareness Council's Teen Advisory Council in Mountain View, and I'm also a writer. My dream is to become a doctor and help people. Finally, I fight to release the stigma around mental health because I believe no one should be branded and stereotyped because of their genetics or trauma from an adverse childhood. One in four people have a mental health challenge. I'm trying to motivate my generation to speak up and help create change. Thank
2: you so much, Ronnie. You are an incredible leader and we're looking forward to a further conversation with you. I want to bring in leaders from UCSF to share more about their work. Santoy, let me start with you.
4: Thank you, Katie, and I am so excited to be here with Ronnie. Uh, My name is Santoy Trotter, and I'm the program manager of the uh, UCSF Benioff Benioff School-Based Behavioral Health Services in East and West Oakland. Uh, We're embedded in a school-based health center that has uh, integrated behavioral health care, primary care, confidential sexual health care, as well as health education. Um, We're a whole team that work together to meet the needs of students and their families. Really, our mission is to bring quality evidence-based culturally responsive and trauma-informed mental health care to young people uh, and their communities. Um, And I want to really emphasize the culturally responsive piece. Um, So important to bring services um, where uh, Latinx families, recent immigrant families, Black families, and young people can access services where traditionally mental health services have been a place of harm um, or um, there's a lot of caution or unknown. Um, You know, we're working with families from the hills of Guatemala who, you know, have never been introduced to mental health or services, and, you know, our team is doing extraordinarily work there. Um, Like many of us, I remember, you know, Friday, March 15th, the days that schools were going to go on shutdown for just two weeks. Uh, I remember getting a call from a principal and our therapist, school-based therapist, kind of going out to the campus to try and get in touch with their students and clients to figure out a way to continue to see them and provide services. In the weeks and months that followed, Uh, we experienced a steep increase in the acuity of mental health symptoms. I've worked in school-based work for over 15 years. And in those three months following, we had a higher number of suicide attempts than I've ever experienced before in our clinics. And I know that that's echoed across the nation and across here and the numbers of young people showing up in our emergency rooms. As Ronnie mentioned, right, her documentary is How to Save a Life. um, And that's the conversation that we're having here. mental health can, be, uh, can have had terminal consequences and we're all working together to save a life, um, including with families. You know, one thing I remember from that time as well as a conversation with a grandmother who t- said to us, you know, is supporting a trainee as she was doing her intake call and said, you know, my granddaughter, she goes to school, you know, she used to get up, get dressed every day and now she's in her room. I can't get her up. I can't get her to eat. She's not going to her remote classes. And I know that many people had similar experiences. I also want us to hold that many young people also are, you know, are doing well inside of this. And so we're going to look at all sides of the issue here. And how do we leverage those young people um, and those peer resources uh, to be able to support the mental health of their community? I think lastly, um, I just want to share that. You know, some of the work that our team was able to do in our school based health center was to provide DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy groups to young people and to really have those groups be virtual, um, be culturally responsive, to get images, pictures. Um, And what we noticed that young people showed up. They showed up, they were stayed, they asked for, when are we doing this again? And so for us all to remember that there's a hunger, that there's a need, and young people will show up to the table when we create those opportunities. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Santoy. Thank you for showing up. And I wanted to um, turn it over to Nikki. Thank you, Katie.
5: Such a pleasure to be here with all of you amazing people. I'm a clinical psychologist, and so a lot of my work overlaps with some of the things that Santoy just described, but I'm also going to emphasize two kind of unique features of my background. Um, My clinical and research career has long focused on social determinants of health, and that means things like socioeconomic status adversity uh, that Ronnie so thoughtfully mentioned, the disparities and exposure to major stressors and how those affect development and health outcomes. And the intersection of the COVID pandemic with the racism pandemic and the political and climate crisis has created this massive amplification of stressors for everyone that is affecting well-being. And on one hand, there's this universal impact of these challenges in that we are seeing staggering increases in mental and behavioral challenges Across race and class, throughout our country, throughout the world. And yet, it's also really important to know that these stress exposures and then the resources required to cope with them and adapt and address them are hugely inequitable in our society, with the bulk of this crisis being borne by communities of color or those of lower income or lower social status. Um, Another angle that I bring to this conversation is that I direct the Division of Developmental Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics and Psychiatry, where we assess and diagnose and support. Um, children with neurodevelopmental challenges. And most people don't realize that one in six children in the United States have a developmental disability. This includes things like developmental delays, ADHD, and autism. And these rates have been shockingly increasing since before the pandemic hit. Um, And we're expecting these rates to actually increase further for a variety of reasons I may have a chance to talk about later. Um, And we had a crisis of service delivery before the pandemic. And Families who have concerns about children displaying developmental or behavioral problems should be able to obtain a a really fast, culturally sensitive assessment to determine whether or not their child has a delay or emotional challenges or some complex mix of those things. And yet this pandemic has led to extreme delays in diagnosis and treatment due to lockdown, shutdown of services, people being ill And telehealth and Zoom has just not been a solution for many of these families because we need to be in person um, to do some of these assessments and really work with these young families and also... Um, Even if families do have an assessment or a care um, recommendation and treatment plan, many of them haven't been able to obtain these services because of community and school closures, COVID restrictions, or mask requirements, which make it really hard to work with these populations. And so there's this huge crisis for families, their service networks, and incredible burnout of all the clinicians and care providers um, throughout the systems.
2: Thanks so much, Nikki. And Will, I wanted to bring you into the conversation.
6: Great. Thank you, Katie. And and thank you all. I'm privileged to be here on, on a panel with such great folks. Um, again, my name is Will Martinez. Um, Katie mentioned I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry, behavioral sciences, and I direct the outpatient services at San Francisco General Hospital that are, are Medi-Cal funded or publicly funded services, mental health services for youth. Um, I, that's one role that I'm bringing to this. So I'm thinking about this from, from a clinic administrator, um, an outpatient, and and how the pandemic has impacted our wait list, how it's impacted our workforce, how we're thinking about implementing programs. Uh, many of us who were working in public health uh, could not deliver services over telehealth prior to this pandemic. They weren't billable. We had to figure this all out on our own. Um, as I often say, we had to do more with less. It's often the motto here in, in child public mental health. So um, that's one. Um, I also have a few other roles that really focus on newcomer immigrant youth populations. Um, one is I oversee the evaluation of the Fuerte program. It's a school-based prevention program for newcomer kids. Um, that's at San Francisco Unified, Oakland Unified, and, and we're expanding into Marin counties as well. Um and then i also uh, uh oversee pediatric behavioral health services for the UCSF Health and Human Rights Initiative where we focus on the health needs of asylum seeking children and families um and i you know as i i want to reiterate um uh, we we often think about this in a public health term of a syndemic. these are pa- two or more pandemics that occur simultaneously together. Um, and with, particularly with our newcomer youth, with our youth of color, they've already been experiencing the pandemics of racism, of anti-immigrant red rhetoric that's been going on in our country. There's already a lot of health disparities, both at the mental health and in medical and physical uh, disparities. And now you add COVID on top of all of this. And, you know, you can imagine... Uh, uh, the dire impact that we ha- have right now um, of this um, I also want to, to also add that you know California up till recently was ranked number 48th in the country in terms of children's mental health this is the base you know that we're working with here 48th um, in the country this is uh, uh, the California's economy if it was its own country would make it fifth or sixth largest in the world um, so and we're ranked at pretty much the bottom in terms of our quality of our expenditures of everything that has to do with our system, child mental health system um, so there's a lot to you know that we need to work on here Thank you
2: Well thanks so much we're going to explore explore those issues in so much more detail um, and I wanted to bring in Petra.
0: Hello, it's great to be here, and I'm already feeling so inspired, in particular, Ronnie, with your introduction. Thank you. I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at UCSF, and I've worked with youth and families around the Bay Area across all socioeconomic spectra and um, in different locations, including in the schools that um, Santoy is the manager for, and um, and I've done a lot of consulting with pediatricians, both inpatient in the hospital and then in outpatient settings. And I am the director of our UCSF Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Portal or CAP um, program that is a consultation program that offers consultation to pediatric primary care providers, as well as school-based health centers and schools. And we offer training and education and care coordination now in 27 California counties. And we're beginning to provide some consultation and training to school-based health centers and schools as well. And in this work, we really deeply value and um, put forth equity, inclusion, diversity, partnership, interprofessionalism, prevention and high quality stigma-free access to care for all. And we also really embrace the principles of trauma-informed care, in particular cultural humility and responsiveness, as well as family voice and choice. And with that, I'll turn it back to Katie.
2: Thanks so much. Well, wow, this is going to be such a rich dialogue. Uh, so many people are bringing um, expertise and experiences into this conversation. And I wanted to sort of open it up to really a group conversation um, and, and lead with a question. And we touched on this a little bit in, in your introductions, but um, I'd love if, if, if um, many of you could give our listeners and our viewers a sense of the increase in demand, that we've been seeing um, since the beginning of the pandemic. And, and Petra, I wanted to turn it to you first to talk about that.
0: Sure. So I think as, um, as my colleagues here and uh, have mentioned already, you know, this is not a new phenomenon, but one of the few silver linings of COVID has actually been to, um, to bring mental health challenges into greater focus and visibility. Um, During the past two years, rates of depression and anxiety have more than tripled across all ages, across the lifespan, and the stress of the pandemic has brought a significant collective impact, Um, though, of course, disproportionately more so um, depending on your socioeconomic status, race, citizenship status, security of housing, food, employment, and insurance, um, really importantly. And so this long-term stressor and the associated losses and changes and the ongoing uncertainty that we're feeling another wave of right now, um, including the collective impact of school and daycare closures, has made this unavoidable. It's in our faces. We can't just say it's an over here problem, that's someone else's problem, and perpetuate some kind of othering around mental illness. It is everywhere. I really can't think of anyone who can say, I don't know anyone whose mental health hasn't been affected by this crisis. Um, So now it's a we problem. And at the individual and family level, we've seen that rates of suicidal ideation and completed suicides have been increasing in the past 10 or more years. Um, And we're seeing now an increase in um, suicide related emergency visits across the country. And um, we've seen increases in depression amongst teens also related to increases in loneliness. And we're seeing an increase in anxiety-related referrals in particular performance anxiety, social anxiety, um, also eating disorder presentations because we're seeing ourselves on camera often and also referrals for obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, And it's really, really tough to find providers, especially in geographically under-resourced areas. And this is not to mention that the mental health care system is very difficult to navigate, it's often fragmented, whether you have Medi-Cal or commercial insurance or can afford to pay uh, cash out of pocket.
2: Thanks so much. I mean, you really brought into vision sort of the, the, the impact on the individual as well as the impact on the system. And, and, and again, we'll explore that in, in more detail. Well, I wanted to ask you, you know, Petra was talking about the, 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 the impact on the, on the mental well-being is really affecting everyone. Um, and you have focused your work on immigrants and newcomers into our community. And I wanted to ask you specifically, what are you seeing in terms of the impact on the young people with whom you're working?
6: Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I'll, uh, echo a lot of what, uh, Petra. Um, just uh, uh, mentioned, we're seeing a lot of diff- of, of uh, rise in mental health problems, particularly among our newcomer and immigrant youth. Um, but especially, and this was during the first year of the pandemic when, when schools were all remote, what we saw was a loss of, of community for many of these kids. Um, schools often serve as a way for them to connect with others. Um, many of these communities are socially isolated. Uh, what the literature tells us about social isolation is more socially isolated you are, the more at risk you are for many different mental health disorders. Um, and these kids did not have those social connections. Um, you know, we I can give one example for our, our uh, fuerte groups, which are mostly done in person or were done in person, right? We never had imagined the program being done over telehealth as many of our services were. Um, we thought we would lose something with doing this over telehealth, but we got a lot of of uh, what we learned at the end was a lot of the kids said this was their only moment to really interact with other kids was that group session that we held with them every week. um that that's an hour a week that lasted over eight weeks over an entire school year. Um, so you can imagine, you know that with that backdrop, a lot of these kids just aren't doing very well. Um, and you know we the other thing I will mention, um, and in particular our newcomer kids, it usually one of the biggest disparities is how many of them access services. Usually, they they wait a long time before they're able to access them, and usually it's coming through the schools. So now, when we're seeing a lot of these newcomers, we're seeing them post discharge from psychiatric hospitalizations um, because of crisis interventions. They're coming much later than they they may have been if you know the schools were open and and they had folks to connect with and whatnot. Um, the isolation is really driving. A lot of the security, in my opinion, in these populations.
2: Thanks so much. I wanted to talk more about schools and um, and explore what we're seeing in, in them. Santori, you have a, you know sort of first hand um, focus on this. Can uh, what what are you seeing um, in terms of the schools?
4: Thank you, Katie. First, I want to say just express my deep gratitude um, and appreciation for, you know, every adult who works inside a school who has put their foot in their bodies, you know, they're in their hearts um, that they're bringing, you know, to schools and to all the students and families that are showing up. You know, every school is a complex ecosystem and and really important to realize and to recognize the layers of support that are um, in schools. At the beginning of the pandemic, I kept saying schools are a sanctuary, schools are a sanctuary. Sure. And, you know, I used to walk around Casmont High School at 7 a.m. Uh, to do like a yoga and mindfulness group for students that were sitting there ready for school because, you know, that was a safe place. You know, students who are there at six o'clock because that's a safe place. Right. At McClyman's, you see students, you know, what's, you know, is there an activity? There's something we can engage in. And so schools, you know, offer, you know, in addition to academics, you know, also, you know, arts and sports and uh, ways to kind of connect to social justice and advocacy. And so what I'm seeing right now that schools are back kind of this hybrid model, this, I think, is the hardest year in schools in the pandemic, you know, with the remote learning, like people... figured it out, kind of like, okay, we're going to figure out how how to do this. And, and, and they did. And, you know, there was, there was, you know, we, that was last year. And then this year, I think is even harder. Um, And, you know, in some ways, you know, one thing just basic if we think about a protective factor relationships, everyone's masked for safety, but yet we don't see expression. You know, we difficult to remember names, um, to attune to emotion and to be reflective and to mirror one another. Um, so, you know, that among many other the complexities of this time, including just staffing shortage, um, you know, put your hand to your heart. If you've lost someone, you know, over the past two years, COVID or not. Right. So people are um, there are not as many people at school and especially with COVID, not as many caring adults. Um, The other important thing to remember is that those transition ages, so the beginning of middle school, the beginning of high school, those kindergarten classes, um, students, many students miss those periods. And so you have seventh graders right now who the last time they were in school, and this is my son, I'm a parent of a 12 year old, was in the middle of the fifth grade. So, you know, did not learn, did not get those sixth grade foundation. You have ninth graders. The last time they were in school was in the middle of the seventh grade, you know, sophomore. So, you know, many of those developmental lessons and learnings and foundational pieces, not only foundational academic, but also foundational social emotional learnings um, didn't happen. And so there's a lot of catch up. And I know many schools, San Francisco, Oakland, and others, you know, really worked hard to emphasize social emotional learning and have a restorative restart. And yet we need to keep embedding those into our curriculum on a daily basis. Um, I think, um, and I think the last thing I'll say here is what we're also seeing in schools is many young people are uh, creating demand for change and culture change. Um, and so we see students you know, walking out and using whatever tools that are available to them to demand safer healing cultures, um, consent culture, uh, mental health services. Um, and I'll just let Ronnie speak to the work she's doing. Um, but we see this across many of the schools right now where students, as they're returning to schools, um, are saying, we want better for ourselves and for our peers.
2: That's a, that's a great segue. Ronnie, I'm going to turn it over to you. What, what, what is the experience that you've had and your peers have had, and, um, and, and how, do, how are you thinking about creating these um, stigma free environments?
3: Yeah, so like Sean Toy said, it's been really hard because we've been learning at home, at, online at home, for over a year. And from talking to my peers, I've learned that some students were left at home without any emotional support. The only communication they had was with with their peers was over text or social media. So social media without digital citizenship was at its height. Please keep in mind, not all students talk to their parents, and with the deep and dark emotions, loneliness, isolation, and the lack of support, some students have learned to hold their thoughts and feelings inside. Now that students are going back in person in in person school, They're expected to bounce back with little support. I believe we need to really create a stigma-free environment with peer-to-peer support and communication for all students, despite socioeconomic background or race. There aren't enough adult resources, such as school counselors, to support students, so students should be taught to support each other to get through this time and beyond. Also, people are talking about mental health right now, Due to the pandemic, and I think we need to go beyond just talking about it and actually do something before this movement dies out. And from my perspective as a school, as a student in school, there are several issues in schools that we really need to address. There's so much stigma around mental health that when I sent out an anonymous form to several parent and teen communities to find out how students are feeling. I only received a few responses. Some schools have parent education about how their teens might be feeling and how to kind of manage that. But many students don't talk to their parents and parents don't always go to the meetings. And in other cases, the parents can be the source of pressure or stress for their teen. In my community, some students are pushed to overachieve by their parents. And that can start to lead to increased stress and mental health challenges. There have been several suicides in my community in the past several years due to the athletic or academic pressure. These students should be supported and taught to strive to do their best and not someone else's definition of what is best. Schools don't have enough mental health resources. For example, my school only has one school counselor and one mental health counselor for roughly 900 students. And for the mental health counselor, you have to get a referral. When students need help, they have to opt in and sign up to see the counselor in the office. Schools are missing the students that don't opt in due to the stigma. There is some digital citizenship, but it's all multiple choice questions and essays And that isn't effective. There is no peer-to-peer conversation. We have PE, but there is no yoga, meditation, or places for struggling students to go and connect. Self-care is not taught in schools. And finally, I go to a school with about 37% socioeconomically disadvantaged, 90 of which are McKinney-Vento students. And there are limited opportunities to support each other's mental health due to the lack of resources. Again, no peer-to-peer communication. We need to be more sensitive to different cultures. Ronnie, thank you. And we're going to get into
2: some of those solutions, but Nikki, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we, we, this is just the, the impact is just not in the here and now It has long-term impact. And how, how are you thinking about that? Sure. Um,
5: I really appreciate the prior comments. I think a layer I'll add to it is around the deep connection between child, children, youth, and their caregivers. And I think there's some been some very important points made that not all youth are tightly connected in a healthy way to caregivers. Um, but in the early years of of children's life, there's not a lot of choice, um, and so. One thing I want to emphasize in, in addition to children not getting the services they need, caregivers these past couple of years have been incredibly stressed. Um, they have lost child care, schooling, et cetera. Many of them are trying to work from home while caring for children. Many of them lost jobs and loved ones. And so caregiver well-being is also at an all-time low. Um, and we know from a lot of our data that uh, children typically ha- have a lot of struggle of having optimal well-being if, if any of their caregivers are not doing well themselves. Um, but the other piece of that is this starts before the babies are born. And so we've got things such as uh, COVID infection during pregnancy is leading to a much higher risk of very preterm birth or preterm birth. Um, We have high levels of stress during pregnancy being associated with all sorts of problematic birth outcomes um, and long-term neurodevelopmental and mental and behavioral health problems of the offspring born to women who've experienced a lot of social stress during pregnancy. And so we have a heightened awareness that there's a here and now in the crisis that's facing us. But we need to be really mindful about what's around the corner, um, what the consequences of all of these impacts are on bodies and minds um, that haven't fully evolved uh, yet. And so we we really need to have that be part of the conversation, part of the planning for immediate and longer term solutions.
2: Thanks so much, Nikki. And uh, Pedro. this is a question for you um, in particular. What is the root cause of this crisis? We've talked about the impact, but what's actually causing this to happen right now?
0: You know, we've been facing a massive and global collective stressor for a long time. Usually, you know, major disasters have a clear beginning, middle and end point with some ability to recover. And this one has been going on for almost two years in the United States, um, longer, more broadly. And we've been experiencing ongoing uncertainty with loss of routines and rituals and connections that are so essential for us to feel healthy and to feel regulated and we've not been able to complete the full circle of what's called our stress response cycle which usually um, starts with some kind of activation in the face of what feels like a threat Um, it activates your your fight flight response um, through neurotransmitter called norepinephrine and this is something that happens automatically and it sends a cascade of signals that makes us start to breathe more quickly and get more oxygen and get more blood to our necessary parts to either get ready to run away or to um, or to avoid something. And, um, and then we usually work through that in a natural cycle and be able to either um, fight or flee. Um, we have not really been able to do that. Instead, we've been caught in Cuts stuck in this on um, position for a fight flight Um, and that leads to an activation of other stress hormones like cortisol that impact blood pressure that impact appetite and cause other changes in your body that are um, related to obesity and high blood pressure and other health problems And, um, and so with that we've had maybe more trouble sleeping, been more irritable, feeling more stressed out uh, we've also experienced a lot of losses including ambiguous ones like loss of um, you know graduations and other rites of passage weddings ability to attend funerals in persons and um, and we've been really you know not be, being able to start college we have um, freshmen um, or sophomores who don't know where to go for their locker or their next class um, And we've also had other kind of smaller losses, really just missing a commute home for those of us who are able to work from home. Um, We don't have that decompression time. We don't have the water cooler conversations with our colleagues where we get that embedded support. Um, We don't have indoor ballet classes or we can't do those. Um, Rhythms and routines are really regulating and these have been disrupted. And so with that also sleep schedules, eating schedules, exercise schedules. And this is part of why exercise can really help with that fight flight response, because it offers a release for your body to kind of come down and be able to come to a state of rest and relaxation. Uh, many children have also lost out on school breakfasts and school lunches, which has affected nutrition. We've seen an uptick in weight gain and obesity and, um, and also, um, across the lifespan. Um, we've seen more physical isolation, which is one of the primary ways that we get to regulate as human beings and help resolve our stress. And thankfully, we've had technology that can help us connect, but it also has its downsides, as we've seen, um, you know, through recent reports in social media about the impact of excessive social media time, um, in particular on body image. So, um, And all of this is just not the same as having that in-person deeper connection with another human being where you can experience that feeling felt, make eye contact, read someone's facial expressions, feel what they're feeling.
2: Thank you, Patriot. Uh, Santoy, so you talk a lot about um, relationships and, and sort of that fractured now. Could you, could you dive in deeper on that question of, in, in terms of like the cause of, of the crisis right now?
4: Absolutely. And we know that relationships are a primary buffer to stress and to all the things that um, Dr. Petra was, Butcher was just speaking about. You know, I want to bring us, let's, let's imagine that we're eight years old. We're growing up in a world where there's climate change and threat, you know, fire schools out because of smoke. We're growing up in a world where there's um, increased exposure to racialized violence and trauma that is not new, that is ongoing. Uh, We're growing up in a world where there's this COVID-19 virus and it keeps changing and changing and changing and becoming more contagious, right? And so this experience of young people in this world, that the world is unsafe um and then having less access to those relationships and to a variety of relationships that let you you know to be that connection to be that buffer Um, You know, uh, there's a quote, Miriam Kiba says that hope is a discipline. Um, And, you know, I want to just name that because part of being exposed to relationships and to care and to love, whether it's at school, where there are multiple caring adults, whether it's at home, um, is to remember like that we need to uh, continue to cultivate a sense of hope and well-being and um, to honor our ancestors who have done the work before us. Um, But if we're not having that conversation, it's Easy, too easy for any of us children, that eight year old child, and for us as adults to slip into a space of, de- of despair. Um, and so that's where relationships, you know, coming together at school, in church, you know, in our temples, in our civic duty, um, and finding ways to do that that aren't just in this flat two dimensional screen um, and to do that safely.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, I, I want to. I want to talk about hope a little bit um, in terms of what what are the early interventions? What are the things that we can do um, now that we have the crisis that that is here upon us? And um, Nikki wanted to ask you first: Why is early intervention so critical in terms of um, uh, impacting the mental health and well being of, of young people?
5: Yeah, thank you. Um... I always love to start by emphasizing it's useful at any point in development, including older age to intervene um, so it's never too late to to find health and improve your well-being but data do show that investment in the perinatal or early childhood years has the most bang for your buck. This is in terms of children's developmental and health and economic outcomes. And so for some challenges like autism, um, intervention in the first few few years of life can be far more transformative in in terms of someone's developmental trajectory and total life well-being um, than if it's delayed by several years. And so detection and early services are really crucial. That said, many emotional and behavioral problems don't manifest until later ages. So focusing on early life isn't enough.
2: And Will, what are your thoughts on, on early intervention? And it's important
6: yeah, I I I think the the Ben Franklin proverb, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure is here. It sounds cliche, but it still rings true. Um, and we don't follow it in child mental health field at all. Um, there is the vast majority of funding goes to fund interventions when we could have really been funding a lot of prevention programming, whether it be in schools, whether it be peer to peer programs like Ronnie talked about there's so much funding that could go into this but it's not the vast majority of funding is going into services when you know kids are already experiencing a lot of uh, mental health issues so um you know uh, proposition 63 otherwise known as the mental health services act that's probably the biggest uh public kind of primary uh uh, funding source for prevention programming in the state even then within that funding source the vast majority of that prevention funding is going to adult Programming and not to kids. So even when there is funding for prevention, the vast majority does not go to kids. Um, you know, I think Nikki, in, in the conversation we had, said kids don't vote is true, um, and and we have to help bring that power to uh, and give uh, power to their voices because they don't.
2: Ronnie, I, I, I'm curious you have you have taken action in your school, um, and I'm curious what what early intervention are you seeing that's really critical and effective in terms of the work that you're doing.
3: Yeah, so I think it really all starts, especially between ages 11 through 14, because that's when we do start using social media. And while it does have its positives, if we aren't taught how to use it, it can really become detrimental to teen mental health. And that's when uh, when prevent, being preventive is more important, is more important. We need to focus more on that, like Will said. And just because the legal age to start using social media is 13, doesn't mean students aren't finding ways around that or communicating over text without thinking before they speak. 14 states require some sort of digital citizenship in schools, and California is one of them. But unfortunately, it focuses more on the academic perspective with videos and multiple choice questions. We aren't really talking about, we aren't talking to each other about these topics, so nothing's changing. There's still cyberbullying and there's still suicides. Social media especially affects girls because we are growing into our bodies and going through puberty. And at a vulnerable time like that, such as 11 through 14, they look at social media and see perfect images of other girls. But in reality... That one photo might have taken 20 minutes to take and 20 minutes to edit to perfection. And if they could see that, maybe the self-harming rates would decrease. It's easy to hide behind a mask when you are on social media. I've heard from people, they were told to kill themselves by people they met online. Not everyone is taught the self-esteem and self-awareness to deal with something so harsh. I think anti-stimic clubs can really help with that Because it allows teens to realize they're not alone. It provides them with the time to create those peer connections and for them to find people to confide in. And if I had the power and resources, I would make sure every school had an anti-stigma club and students would be trained by the National Alliance for Mental Illness to lead peer-to-peer groups where kids can just talk about how they're feeling Thanks so much, Ronnie. And statistics
2: bear bear out what you're saying because 50% of mental illness starts by age 14 and 75% by age 24. Um, and I, w- I want to move our conversation into um, talking about specifically like what kind of services are should we be providing? What, what's out there and what are you providing? And Petra, maybe you can lead us on this on this question.
0: Sure. So there simply are not enough providers. Um, what we need is really to think about doing things differently, to think about charting a new course and, again, making this kind of a collective, we are in here to solve this together. And that means getting the right care at the right time by the right person and for the right length of time. Traditional models of mental health care are, you know, you refer out, it takes months to get an appointment, you may never hear communication back to the referring person. There are tons of barriers and hurdles to actually getting connected with a provider, Um, and that includes documentation, that includes um, economic, financial, So what we really need to do is think about how can we increase and elevate everyone's kind of mental health literacy, everyone's ability to recognize, you know, when does anxiety or fear drive a behavior like not going to school or yelling at someone because you're feeling so scared or becoming aggressive and getting into a fight and having some deep curiosity and empathy and um, wanting to look at what's underneath the surface of behaviors. And that includes, you know, all of us, um, not only pediatricians, but also other professionals who work with children um, and really all of us, you know, um, throughout um, society being able to, you know, recognize conditions a little bit earlier on. Um, And then for those folks who really do need access to more care, you know, there should be um, an opt out rather than an opt in, like Ronnie was saying, that um, this is something that is as readily available as vaccines, for example, and again not that everyone gets you know intensive um, support, but
2: rather that you get enough support at the right time at critical moments. Thanks so much. Nikki what what can you elaborate more on um, services in this particular? Yeah I'd be happy to. I, I think Pat makes great points
5: around specific mental health issues and and I think we also need to think about a dramatic revamping of our systems that promote child and family well-being across many sectors, because this is not limited to mental health. Mental health and the stress effects related to this are affecting physical health, substance misuse, educational attainment, entire functioning of our society. Um, And so we have to address this. It's gonna be costly um, emotionally and economically if we don't, and um, we need to really revamp things. We need more money in the system and across systems. Um, but we really have to expand these providers because Pedro describes an amazing opportunity to meet the needs of kids, but we don't don't have enough people properly trained to do that. And the system's set up such that only certain people can get Uh, reimbursed for certain services, even though many, many people have the potential to be greatly impactful. I mean, I listened to Ronnie and she, I I would rather see her than some of the other people that insurance will reimburse for, for working with me or send my kids to Ronnie. So I'm not saying that that's the solution, but there's lots of, um, community-based, youth-based, and uh, many layers of services that we could work to restructuring the system so that the people who need these services are identifying who they want to receive them from in the format and the context in place, et cetera, um, so that it meets their needs and meets them where they're at. These people need to be at the table in redesigning these solutions um, so that they can ensure that they meet their needs in a responsive and culturally sensitive way. I also think we need to expand who's eligible for services, um, and it shouldn't be something that we need to get medical approval to seek, just like Ronnie described the school context, that's also the case in, in mental health. Often you need a referral from a pediatrician or another provider in order to get these services. And California has been doing a good job in some ways. There's some amazing leaders and advocates who are really trying to change the system and we have little micro moments where we're seeing solutions around you know what can be reimbursed and whether or not um, diagnoses are required. Uh, but it's just baby steps. We need a rehaul um, and we need a lot more investment of resources. Uh, the other piece I'll just want to add is that um, there's a lot of anxious parents out there and they're wondering, what can I do? There's year-long wait lists to, to see some of you, or an indefinite closed wait list. What can I do? I want to just highlight that our research in California and nationally, um, part of the National Children's Study, ECHO, um, it's following 50,000 families or more to try to understand um, health and development in children. And we're finding that, you know, stable caregiving, if you can provide it, especially if you're able to take care of your own mental health and well-being um, to provide some stability and structure is an incredible buffer for these families. So when you're able, um, care for yourself and, and know that it does make a difference for your child's well-being.
2: Thanks so much, Nikki. Well, we, I wanted to ask you, and um, this is a, a question um, from, from the audience um, and, and sort of a broader question that I'll add on to it. Um, is the state of California efficiently contributing to mental health services? And um, the viewer specifically is asking through its tax program on high earners. And And I know you've been thinking deeply about systems level change, and I'm wondering if you can speak specifically about what we might be able to do more in this area.
6: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think Nikki brought up a lot of important points. There's a lot of changes happening at, at the systems level in California on, on what service can be reimbursed. So the future is looking very bright in that respect. Um, are, can we do more? Yes, um, there's a lot more. Both we need funding. We need folks who are trained. Um, you know, one of the, the good things we have, you know, we're, spend, we're talking about a lot of gloom and doom, but we know a lot of things that work. There's a lot of programs out there that are doing great work. Um, there's a lot of treatments out there that work. There's a lot of prevention programming, um, community-based models, et cetera, you name it, school-based models. Um, we know things that work. The thing is that the majority of kids are not getting that. These are small pockets of things that are working in little areas. But the vast majority of kids who need high-quality and, and programs that are evidence-based at work are not receiving them um they're not getting culturally gender responsive uh you know programming um so they're dropping out of services right um and frankly we just do not have enough providers and enough providers that are trained and much incentive for these providers because of the lack of funding that we're going to pay them to get trained to remain in the system um and providing services under these conditions so all of this um we really need both a kind of public and private sector uh uh Funding and systems level changes that need to happen.
2: Uh, absolutely, and and you touched on workforce, and I, I wanted um, Santoy to um, uh, move this to you. Um, you know what? Uh, what is the impact on this crisis to our professionals and the practitioners in the field? What are you seeing in schools, and um, and how uh, and how nervous are you? I guess is the question I have. <laughs>
4: Yeah. I mean, my heart just goes out with so much love um, for providers and and for educators and for other staff at schools. Um, and I see how hard people are working to show up to balance their, their commitment and their passion for children, um, as well as take care of their own families. Um, you know, even, you know, coming back from the holidays, you know, 50% of folks that, you know, on my team were impacted by COVID or someone in their home having COVID. Um, I think, you know, we, as we're working hard to have clinicians who represent the communities that we serve, so black and brown clinicians, um, we also know that these communities are also the hardest hit by COVID in terms of illness um, uh, and death. Um, So impacting, you know, that has impacted them. You know, one, you know, we have, such a commitment, you know, across our system to take care of our our workforce and um, some of the ways we traditionally have done collective healing have been compromised by the pandemic. And, um, you know, walks have been canceled, things have been changed, but we did, were able to take a walk across around Lake Merritt as like a healing day for our team. And at the end of the year, everyone said, oh, that was their favorite thing from this year. So many people said, oh, when we took that walk, when we took that walk, when we took that walk, you know, doing hybrid retreats, um, I know, actually, I think tomorrow or Friday, um, OUSD is doing a wellness day and um, people are having the day off to attend to their well-being. And so we need to keep getting innovative and creative about ways that we're taking care of people. Um, but definitely impact the on the workforce and, you know, just a shortage of caring adults, um, you know, in the clinics or at the schools um, ha- has been happening.
2: Petra, what are you seeing in this area?
4: Yeah, I mean, I would say throughout
0: my direct clinical work, as well as in consultation with primary care providers, and also in our work with um, with schools, um, Santoy's saying everyone who crosses a school threshold, you know, we have such deep empathy for them. I mean, this has been such a challenging year. And um, really, there's been so much variability in terms of access um, or private spaces, and there's so much complexity in terms of what primary care providers are seeing because there are so few, you know, more specialized mental health providers in particular. And so we're really seeing, you know, what people are calling burnout across the system and also significant burnout, you know, in our team members and really recognizing what are the ways that um, we need to just take small steps, even um, like, for example, starting meetings five after the hour, just to ensure that little bit of break time. Um, but people are really feeling you know stretched all around and uh, personally and professionally. And, um, and one big thing that really keeps recurring is emotional exhaustion. Um, and I think it's something that we really need to pay attention to and hold as a value in our systems that we, um, we really value well-being as a key priority for our workforce in order to sustain,
2: not only retain but also sustain ourselves. Thanks so much, Petra. Uh, Another question from um, one of our um, audience members, and this is a really sort of personal significant question. And, um, Will, I think this may be to you, but uh, other people jump in. Um, How does one get mental health help for a child whose parents don't see such a need?
6: Yeah, I I think that that is a... uh, 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 Unfortunately, a common occurrence, um, I can just off the top of my head right now, dealing with a few of those in, in our clinic and trying to do is, um, you know, this is the stigma issue is not just stigma is on our, at a societal level. Um, just the way we think about mental health is fragmented. It's completely separate. We don't, you know, the way it's reimbursed and how insurance thinks about it, the way even our mental health system uh, is set up in a way that's completely isolated from the rest of medical or physical health services. Um, we somehow, as a society, as as a global species, look at mental health as this other um, that doesn't that we don't talk about that we don't need to seek help with. So it's not surprising then um, that. We're not, you know, I I don't, you know, I can't speak with not knowing enough details. There are ways for, for if they're old enough for adolescents to seek out services um, without needing parental consent under certain conditions. Um, I would say having, if that adolescent is trying to seek services, connect with the schools, connect uh, uh, with uh, their primary care provider, and perhaps they can assist um, them in getting those services. But that is a tough situation um, when the parents really aren't seeing in need. Um, and if you can educate them, great. Sorry.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. Will, thank you so much. Um, I, I hate to cut you off. Um, Santoy, I'm sure you also have, um, some deep experience in this area as well.
4: Yeah, I would just add just in the state of California, uh, young people ages 12 and up can consent to their own mental health care. Um, But it's also our work to continue to think about, you know, we all have emotional health and well-being. And so how do we continue to educate parents, families, caregivers, um, having, you know, health education events um, where we're sharing about mental health and services um, so that there's a greater understanding because we know that those parents, those caregivers, they are the people who are going to travel with that young person, you know, throughout their youth. Um, You know, we are, temporary in their lives. And so as much as we can do to, um, you know, acknowledge maybe that no or not interest, but to continue to build a bridge while we also support that young person to get access to services. Many schools have school-based health centers in your school. So young people, parents, cousins, aunties, uncles who are concerned about your young person, godmamas, you know, make sure to remind them that there are ways way to access, you know, confidential services through their school-based health centers and other ways at school.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for that broad question. We are coming to the end of our program. So much has been discussed. And I wanted to ask each of you um, a combined sort of final question. And that is, what do you want our listeners and our viewers to take away from today's discussion and and where can we get resources if we need help? And Ronnie, I wanted to um, turn to you first.
3: Yeah, so I think I want everyone to know that stigma needs to be addressed immediately. Parity between mental and physical health care needs to be enforced so that all teens and tweens can get access to mental health resources inside and outside of school. And students know what they need. We need to listen to the students. And we need students to listen to each other. There needs to be more information provided to students about where to get help in schools. Because a lot of students don't know where to go. And they feel lost. Enforcing peer-to-peer support and communication is such an important way to help students share their feelings and emotions with someone. Students are not naive. We're exposed to so many things at a young age including sex, alcohol, drugs. It's all out there. Challenge us with the ability to talk to each other and learn from each other about mental health. Open up the conversation. Adults need to listen more. So often, everyone wants to talk and help kids, but sometimes kids just want to be heard. Finally, there are three new Senate bills being passed requiring that all states have a mental health education plan in place by January, 2024. I believe we need to make sure this includes peer-to-peer education and not just online or textbook learning. Thank you. Thank you. Santoy,
2: love to have your closing thoughts.
4: I'm just gonna echo what Ronnie said, Um, more youth adult partnership and collaboration together. We can make this happen. Um, And the last thing is, access, on-demand access to culturally responsive mental health services. And wherever you are at, you know, whether you're at the state, the policy level, the funding level, um, you know, do what you can to create that on-demand access to mental health services. Young people are wanting it. They're letting people know that they want it and need it. There is some reduced stigma of the stigma. You know, thank you, Simone Biles. Thank you, Naomi Osaka, you know, for speaking out about mental health services and our mental health needs. Needs and our emotional health. So, continuing to do that. And then the other thing is also universal screening, um, being able to screen because a lot of times we don't see what's there. Um, so, really being able to screen, but making sure that we're able to provide resources, quality mental health resources when we do screen.
6: Thank you.
2: Thank you. And, Will.
6: Um, I'm just gonna echo uh, what Santoy and Ronnie said I, I agree completely with them I, I want to add that the universal screening is explicitly we need to provide some resources. Um, I'm here you know we we're hearing a lot about that universal screening but then what happens um, and we do not the end of the system where we catch that there's a problem cannot handle that we just do not have the resources. So we really need to think about both sides, prevention, um, funding, and especially the youth voice. I mean, I think that's been sorely lacking in a a lot of development, especially at the policy level, um, how this all impacts kids and their voices there.
2: Thank you so much. Petra, what are your closing thoughts? This impacts all
0: of us and collectively, we need to work together to address it. That's just um, through workforce development, as well as all of us kind of elevating our understanding and advocacy and whatever ways that we can make a difference together. Thank you.
2: Thank you. And Nikki, you get the uh, last word privilege. Uh,
5: I want to add that although we're emphasizing a lot of problems and risks, it's a pretty depressing conversation on many levels. I just also want to highlight that we show remarkable resilience as a species. We know healthy behavior, sleep, exercise, diet, social support can be remarkable buffers, and we need as individuals to take care of ourselves. But also we have to, as individuals, ensure that all others have equal rights and access to basic self-care to protect themselves from covid and to promote their their mental well-being. And this includes putting our money and our votes behind policies and programs that support basic needs for children and families and all humans, um, as well as specific mental health uh, supports for, for the workforce and um, the, the communities that need them.
2: Thank you so much. I know that uh, we'll have um, some additional resources available if people um, want to learn more about these programs, as well as gain support and help for your own family. I just want to thank, thank everybody. This conversation could go on for, uh, for, for much longer. There's such a deep, deep conversation, and it's really the end of our program. And I just wanted to thank all of our speakers for joining us today, from UCSF, Nicole Bush, William Martinez, Pedro Steinbuschel, and Sontoy um, Trotter, and Ronnie Sindeldecker. You are a leader. Thank you so much for your perspective and your leadership. It's so critical to have a youth perspective when we're talking about issues that impact young people. Um, another special thanks to the John Pritzker Family Fund for its support of this program. I'm Katie Albright, and this is the Commonwealth Club's program. It is now adjourned. Thank you so much.
4: You've
0: been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.